Hi there. Welcome back to the Better Call Saul Insider Podcast. This is the final bonus episode uh, in between parts of the season. These in-betweener bonus episodes. I hope you've been enjoying them. I've appreciated all your feedback. And this, we're doing it as as quasi-promised. This is the long-awaited mailbag episode where I... Um, somewhat inadvisably created an email address for the show and uh, solicited questions. And we got hundreds of questions. So thank you guys for sending all those questions. We really appreciate it. It's completely impossible for us to answer all of them, but we're going to do our best. This is going to be a very unconventional episode because um, things are like weirdly like they're crazy busy, but also winding down and so, which I know that sounds like um, sounds like those things are at odds, but such is the nature of television production. And we uh, so what what uh, first of all, uh, again, thank you for sending all these questions. Uh, a lot uh, there there were there were a, a number of questions that are about like plot specific things that pertain to the second half of the season. So obviously we're not going to talk about those. So, uh, and, and the, what, what we've done is, um, a lot, depending on the person, we've either, uh, hopped on a zoom and, and done uh, a quick kind of recording session, or, um, I've given the questions to people and, uh, had them record answers on their own because again, because, you know, we, we still, it, being in a room together is, um, you know, we, we, we do it sparingly. We do it with masks and, um, masks, not great for recording a podcast. So anyway, all of that to say, we're doing our best to get these recorded. So we're doing our best to make this actual episode and, and answer as many of your questions as we can. And as we have time for so, uh, I hope you enjoy it, and you know, without further ado, why don't we just jump into a question? Ooh, what should we do? All right, this first question comes from David H., and David asks, what is the best piece of storytelling advice that you're willing to share with a fellow writer? So first, to answer that, we've got co-creator Peter Gould. Uh, and one thing to note, we had some technical difficulties with Peter's recording, so you'll sometimes hear little glitches. Sorry about that. Uh, here's Peter. I think the first thing I'd say is uh, never underestimate your audience. Uh, they're way smarter than you probably think they are. That doesn't mean that you can't, you can be unclear, but it does mean that uh, you can write to the top of your intelligence, whatever that is. And that's that's something that's that's hard to learn, and uh, but it's very useful. And then, especially for dramatic writers, there's no substitute for having uh, actors read read your work, uh, even if they're not commenting on it or giving you any notes. Just hearing uh, how actors approach a scene uh, is incredibly informative. And uh, the last thing I'd say is, if especially if you're a dramatic writer or a screenwriter, think about writing scenes that are fun for actors to play, and. Uh, what that actually means? Well, that's a that's a deeper subject, but I think it's 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 very useful to think about what's what's a good scene for an actor to play. What's a what's a scene that's going to be appealing for an actor? What's a scene that's going to challenge an actor, and why? 
And now to answer that same question, our co-creator Vince Gilligan, along with executive producers Tom Schnauz, Allison Tatlock, and Gordon Smith, who Jen Carroll, super producer to the stars, managed to corral in a Zoom room to answer some of these questions. Go as slow as you possibly can while keeping it interesting. Like don't resist the urge to, to and people are going to tell you to turn over cards and people are going to tell you go fast and just get to the plot and do whatever. But if you are, if you have made sure that your your ducks are in a row and you are telling the story, go as slow as you can. That's good. That's good advice. What were you going to say, Allison? Um, I was going to say that in our Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul family, we talk a lot about working brick by brick when we build stories. So we we carefully track the psychology of each of our characters, and we talk extensively about where their head is at from scene to scene and episode to episode so that we can we can build a psychological story for them that that makes sense that's good even if there are sometimes leaps because they are of course human beings and human beings as we say contain multitudes and contradictions and sometimes behave erratically that's good advice i would say don't explain things to the audience through your character's dialogue have them speak naturally, understand what your character wants and have them go in that direction. And just because your character is thinking something, he doesn't have to say it. In fact, they may say something entirely opposite and don't feel the need to say exactly what's on their mind, no matter how much a studio executive tells you. We need to understand what the audience needs to understand what they're thinking. As long as you know what they're thinking and your actor knows what they're thinking, you're good to go. Those all three wonderful bits of advice from Gordon, Allison, and Tom. I, only thing I would have to add is always assume the audience is smarter than you are, which kind of links up with a lot of what these guys were just saying. Just don't feel a need to explain everything because the, the audience is very likely smarter than you are and uh, treat them with respect. Uh, keep that in mind and treat them with respect because uh, they, they, they get it and they get it without it. And as Tom was saying, without ex- over explaining. And yeah, talk about authentic people and tell a story about real people, real human emotions, and you, you won't ever go too far wrong. All right. Jamie M asks, when you're editing an episode, does the director of the episode get final say on the cut or does the editor get it? Uh, that's a good question, Jamie. Uh, and there's, uh, the, actual, the actual answer is a little more complicated than that. Um, so the way the process works is as an editor, we get all the footage and we make our cut. We present the editor's cut to the director. And then the director has a set amount of time in a one-hour drama. They get four days, which is not a lot of time, to be honest. On a movie, a director gets 10 weeks Uh, So um, television directors have to be way more economical and efficient with their, the time that they spend with their editors. Um, You know, everything just moves so much faster. And so the director, they get their cut. Uh, You know, she or he will say, I really want to, you know, take a look at this scene. Let's, let's explore the footage. Let's try different things. I had this in mind. I had that in mind. And they present their cut, the director's cut to the producers. And now the producers are the ones who ultimately shape the show. And they're the ones who have 
the quote-unquote final say about the cut. And, you know, what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll work with that director's cut. Sometimes we'll review scenes or the entirety of the editor's cut just to get an idea, especially if they're very different. You get to sort of see, you know, the, the producers get to see, all right, there are different approaches to these scenes. And, and a lot of times I'll come up with multiple versions of scenes, you know, with sort of different approaches. And, you know, we can take a look at those, too. Uh, but ultimately, the in television, it's the the producers who are the the writers generally, though not always. But but certainly on Better Call Saul, uh, you know, it's it's Peter and Vince are are the ones who who have the ultimate say. And then at that point, we pre- we present the show to the studio and the network, and they give their feedback, and we you know implement their notes and and take a look at it and. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, we lock the episode and then we finish it. So, and we send it off to, to you in TV land. Uh, is that a place? It's a network, certainly. Is that still a network? I don't know things sometimes. Um, but let's, let's move on. Uh, Chris H. asked a question for Vince. Was there a nod to the 1968 movie Planet of the Apes when Saul sees the inflatable Statue of Liberty in episode 602? Chris H., you are very astute, my friend. Yes, the shot in episode 602 that you're referring to is indeed a visual shout out to the original, the ending of the original Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston and his uh, lovely new lady of the future are riding up the beach on horseback and then he sees, oh my God, the Statue of Liberty, the, the wreckage of it in the surf. And he says, you maniacs. You blew it all up. And in fact, if we ever uh, show the uh, dailies, uh, if they ever we ever make public the dailies from that day of shooting, Bob Odenkirk does that exact line. He says, you maniacs, you blew it all up, which we thought we would use, but we were high. And so it's like, no way we're going to actually use that line in the in the actual episode. But good eyes. That's uh, the shot uh, from the movie, I think, is eyeline left and the way we shot it uh for reasons of where the light was coming from was eyeline right for for bob eyeline left for charlton heston but uh yeah we're definitely that was an homage okay so we got some questions that are kind of more director specific so i thought why not go to one of my favorite directors in the world uh who's also an executive producer on the series this year it's michael morris hello hey it's good to see you. What a pleasure. Pleasure to be back. Are you kidding me? After an introduction like that, I can only disappoint, which is fun. Well, that's impossible. But also, uh, I you just got back into town from uh, the Nantucket Film Festival, where uh, To Leslie, a film that perhaps you've heard us talk about on the podcast before, that Michael directed and that I edited, uh, was, was showing at the Nantucket Film Festival. Yeah, it was fantastic. In fact, um, the film, not to derail um, the important business at hand, <laughs> but the film that we made has has taken me to some really fun places so far because it's been at South by Southwest and Chicago and Nantucket. And uh, I think it's even going to the <laughs> film festival, which if I can get there, that would be incredible. And if wow. I can't, you should, you should go. Oh, man. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to be with the film. Still very sad I couldn't be a South by, but but uh, yeah, I I love this movie and I can't wait till everybody sees it. But that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, I, we're uh, we're talking mailbag, uh, which uh, full disclosure was actually Michael's idea. 
you're you you're the one who said like wouldn't it be great if we uh open the open the uh a podcast up to audience questions and um and i could tell we you did. that that is uh is really a lot of work and uh i'm i'm upset yeah, I'm with you <laughs> i'm sorry about that i mean the thing was like you do this amazing podcast i love it so much i love being part of it i love listening to it and there's a natural break between episodes so why not right. fill it with four thousand hours of work yeah no and that's yeah. and that's what we're doing now and and uh so so let's just get right to it um right. so robbie w asked uh, what was the hardest scene to shoot this season? Or you can say, what was the hardest scene for you to shoot this season? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because sometimes it's the sometimes it's the scenes that are obviously hard, I think, are the hard ones to shoot. And sometimes it's scenes which you wouldn't think are hard. I can think of three or four scenes, which I won't mention because we're only halfway through the season. Ooh, that, that are that, that, um, are some of my favorite scenes that are, were very hard to shoot just because of things like conditions, like shooting all night, like the amount of focus and presence that, that our actors had to give time and time again for hour upon hour to, to create these performances. So uh, I could answer it a half a dozen ways, but I think, um, you know, in the first episode of the season, there was a sequence with uh, Lalo uh, arriving at, at a, a remote area where he, where he, um, he got involved with some coyotes who were smuggling people across the border. Right. And that sequence for a lot of different reasons was, um, was challenging. And like I say, challenging for me is weirdly often hand in hand with my favorite scenes. So, um, but the, the, there are a bunch of challenges. Uh, the weather was insanely shifting. Albuquerque does that to you. There were days where when we got to the set in the morning, we, the entire crew was wrapped up from head to toe in thermals and then by lunchtime, it was 90 degrees. And, and, and truly, uh, I'm not kidding. And, and rolling with that kind of weather is, is its own kind of challenge. It was also high COVID. And, uh, and we, were, we were trying to shoot people crammed together in a small space. Right. Uh, and that was, um, it was anxiety inducing for a, lot of, for a lot of us because safety, you know, for all your plans, safe, there's nothing more important than keeping people safe. So we we had a lot of questions that we were asking ourselves about how we were doing that and trying to trying to provide ventilation without providing light for something that was outside in the bright sun was pretty tricky uh and plus we had to shoot um shots of lalo uh traveling distances in the back of a truck which was extremely uncomfortable uh, on this crazy off-road in fact the amazing transportation and set departments worked together to rebuild a road actually that, were, that had completely blown away in some windstorm. The only way into and out of the basin we shot in is, is incredibly soft sand and it's on a, quite a steep slope. And I was adamant that I wanted a shot of uh, Lalo's um, truck coming in and on the truck that he steals going out. And so uh, about a week before we got there, they literally rebuilt that road uh, with some crazy techniques that that I don't even they, they started to describe it to me. And I said, I don't want to know how you did it because it's too much, <laughs> but they made it happen. And uh, uh, and so it was it was very challenging to shoot the sequence. But um, but it's classic sort of Albuquerque, Western Albuquerque wide shots. And, and I love it for that reason. That's great. That's 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 a, that's an awesome one, and uh, and a deep tease for uh, the second half of the season, which uh, starts next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. 
Miles R asks, has there been a moment where you read something in a script and think, how the hell are we going to pull that off? And are there any really tough examples? Yeah. I mean, Miles R could have asked, has there ever been a moment when you haven't read something in the script and thought, <laughs> how the hell are we going to pull that off? Um, that's one of the things that I love. And I think everyone who directs this show loves is, is you want to make every moment here, uh, whether that's putting cameras in places that cameras have never been or, or figuring out some of the brilliant directors who have worked on the show have done extremely ambitious uh, oneers. Um, but I'll I'll look back seasons. Is that okay? Uh, rather than oh yeah, at this no, season? absolutely. This this can okay. span of, from season one to season now. Okay, that's great because there are some extremely cool things to talk about. But but I, I'm I don't want to spoil anything. So going back to some earlier seasons, there was a shot that comes to mind in the episode um, where Werner is setting up is being interviewed to set up the uh the super lab mm -hmm. uh, and and there was a there was a pre-werner uh, specialist who was flown in and uh i had decided that i wanted to do th this prolonged sequence of him uh on the shuttle bus at i think it was um denver airport and he gets off the bus we see the bus coming he gets off the bus he walks through the the, the parking lot he finds a hidden key. He gets in a car. He sees all, all lots of beats uh, of a sequence, which was sort of showing how careful the whole plan was to get him into his rental car. And we did it as a single one -er on this long crane uh, with something of a track. And that was just an enormous amount of fun to, to, to solve that. And I think the moment we, re we, we decided, okay, we're going to try this as one, and still hit all the close-ups and hit all the beats along the way. That that was a kind of me looking at at, at everyone around me and going, "How the hell are we going to do this? Sounded good, but how are we going to do that?" And then the other, th there's another one that that comes to mind, which was reading um, reading the teaser for um, quite a ride. The beginning of episode four or five starts with a flash forward to Saul Goodman's office, and there was the, that whole teaser was phenomenal when you read it. It was just chaos and panic. And, you know, it was the end of days, basically. And as soon as I read it, I thought, you know, there's so many, so many obstacles to making this the way that you would want to make it. First of all, no one had built that set in years. That set had been in storage. All the props, all the things that everybody who loves the show would expect and want and need to see were we even going to get these together? Like, how was this going to come together? And then uh, in discussing it with Peter, we decided very quickly that we wanted to shoot it on, on film, on 35 millimeter film. So the whole, we, we, which was enormous fun in every way. And in fact, you and I went on to make a movie that was shot in 35 millimeter film. We liked it so much. That's right. But, uh, but uh, the, the, this was a classic case on Better Call Saul of taking a brilliant idea, which was, the flash forward to Saul just before he disappears and, uh, and just adding a couple of extra rungs of, of um, interest or difficulty or whatever you want to say, just, just trying to make it feel and look like something that was from the breaking bad era, as opposed to something that was from um, the Saul era, because is, is, as your listeners will know, they have different personalities, you know, it's the yes. same universe, but 
we we operated that handheld uh, on 35 millimeter cameras, which is not something we would do. We would very rarely be handheld on on Better Call Saul. So it was about retraining ourselves and the way we looked at shots and the way we operated them uh, to make that work. That was that was a lot of fun. All right. Edward R. asks, why did we have Michael Morris as a directing producer in season six? And more broadly, why are directors on most shows not kept on staff when most other roles seem to be permanent? Here's Peter Gould. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a lot of ways to answer this. On Breaking Bad, we did not have an official uh, producing director or directing producer, but we had Michelle McLaren uh, after season two. And Michelle McLaren was, in addition to being uh, the actual on-location producer, along with uh, a few other folks, including the brilliant Melissa Bernstein, uh, Michelle was also and is a brilliant director. So we kind of got... Uh, we kind of got two for one there with Michelle. Uh, on this show, it's um, it's an interesting question. I, I think there are there are trade offs. There's something that's great about bringing different directors in because you get different points of view. You 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 learn about the show from seeing how different people handle the scenes, and uh, you know we all we all kind of we we all develop the show a little bit from done before. Uh, there have been directors, uh, including Michelle who came in and uh, revolutionized the way the shows looked and felt. And we all learned from that. So there's, there's a lot of advantages to having different directors. I know that some shows have you know one or, or two directors for a season. It's never been something that we really thought about. And the other thing, of course, is that on our particular show at this point, we have a lot of in-house directors. There's, of course, Vince uh, Gilligan, but there's also Melissa Bernstein, Tom Schnauz, Gordon Smith, me, uh, there's there's a there's a few people uh, who work on the show who also direct, so it just naturally leads to having uh, more than one director. And I, you know, I think there are some advantages to that. I think there could also be disadvantages, but that's the way we've been doing it. As for Michael, uh, I felt Michael Michael Morris is uh, a really special, brilliant guy. Uh, he's not only a brilliant director; he's also a great communicator. Uh, he understands people very, very well. And that we started this season and knowing that it was going to be our most complicated, difficult season ever, uh, we thought it would be great to have Michael there for um, to back up our directors and help to create a, uh, some continuity. And of course, the I wouldn't even say it's a bonus, but the other thing is that we had Michael direct two episodes. And boy, he just rocked both of those. So uh, that's uh, directing producers. All right. Eric M., who is a reverend, asks... Does the writer's room ever talk about the idea of justice or right versus wrong explicitly, or is it more in the background as you craft narratives? How would you describe the moral laws of the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul universe? Very interesting question. Here's Vince, Tom, Allison, and Gordon. That's a good question. That's a legit good question. We talk about morality all the time in the writer's room. We we, we did on Better Call Saul, and we, we did on Breaking Bad as well, and and I was thinking a lot about it in uh, when I was writing El Camino as well. It, it's, I think we all want to live in a just world that makes sense, where merit and goodness is rewarded and, and evil is punished. And a lot of times it seems like evil is not punished, bad behavior is not punished on, on all these shows, on both these shows and in the movie. 
because that feels like real life. We all we all know that real life feels like the bad guy wins a lot of the time. But I think in general, even though we have characters who do very questionable things, it was always important to me personally that they don't that we talk always about the consequences of their decisions. The consequences are usually pretty bad for these folks who, who make bad life choices. And they don't, it, in the short term, they often profit from it, but in the long term, they don't. And yeah, I, I think the characters of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul want justice to prevail, so to speak, want good to win out over evil, just as much as real life people do. It's just, they're flawed and, and very often they, they kind of, they all have feet of clay and they all, uh, they all have trouble uh, from time to time doing the right thing. But hopefully it feels like a real world. I'd say we talked a lot about karma, even though it's something I don't really believe in that happens and exists, but there's, as a storytelling device, it's very useful that there's karmic justice that happens when somebody does something, something usually comes back because of it. So there's, there's a lot of talk around that happening in our stories. That's good. Yeah, Allison, you look like you had something. Yeah, I was going to just add one more one more thing to that, that it, it just occurs to me that I feel like we talked a lot about Mike Ehrmantraut's morality in particular, and the difference between killing somebody who is in the game and somebody who's not in the game. And that sort of connects to your point, Tom, about karma. Like, um, not that certain human beings deserve to live and others don't, but that we need to understand the morality of our own characters, even as they are perhaps behaving in ways that we ourselves as writers would find reprehensible or immoral, that they have their own moral codes and that we need to understand what they are. That's good. All right. This next question comes from Chris, who runs the at It's Saul Goodman account on Twitter. And Chris asks, after Better Call Saul, what will life be for Mike Bermantrout? He never gets enough love. Mike? You're right. Jeez, I never get enough love. That's a good point. Um, let's see, after Better Call Saul, yeah, probably going to hibernate for a while. Then I've been uh, been working this gig. Um, Chris Sullivan, the uh, American television actor, has a, a son named Bear ironically. And so I've been doing some work in his bedroom as a punching bag slash lovey slash nap buddy. So that's, uh, that's been paying the bills for now, but, uh, yeah, mostly just hibernation. Oh, that's really nice to hear. That's nice to hear. I, you know, I actually, uh, Chris Sullivan is a friend of mine. Um, that's, that's such a wild coincidence. Yeah. I, I, uh, uh, sometimes I thank him on this podcast for, for no reason in particular. So, um, so there you have it, Chris. I, I hope, uh, I hope that's good to know. And thank you, Mike. Uh-huh. All right. Yush K asks, what is a sequence on the show that you are really proud of? Uh, I'll take that one. Yush. Um, uh, the, the, the sequence I'm the most proud of hasn't aired yet. It comes coming up later in the season. Um, uh, I can't wait for people to see it, but the, but of things that have actually aired so far, uh, I, you know, I was involved initially in the inflatable man montage in episode 207. Uh, now I, all credit is due to Kelly for how that thing finally turned out, but I am proud of my role in it. And, and I'm proud to have been even a small part in it. Um, but of things that 
were my just my own. And this sort of speaks to um, the the question that Jamie M asked earlier, as far as who who gets their say or who gets the final say. Uh, the episode in episode five hundred one, which was the Magic Man montage, where uh, Jimmy, who is now going by Saul. Uh, was sort of giving out phones and introducing himself to the underworld as a lawyer. Um, now that sequence was really, really difficult and complicated, and there were there were a lot of challenges. I think we talked about it in the five hundred one podcast. Um, but the finally, when when we came upon the idea of this overlapping sound, uh, it was something that I, I felt like we we really hadn't done something quite like that on the show. And, you know, that's sort of what we're always trying to do is, is figure out, you know, new ways to approach things. So I would say that one, that is, that is a sequence that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, but stay tuned uh, later in this season. All right. Um, so we also got a couple of post-production focused questions and I thought who better to answer those questions than uh, the queen of post herself, executive producer diane mercer so i got diane on a zoom right now how you doing diane i'm all right chris how are you i'm good it's a little weird because we're we're i mean we're in the same building like three doors down from each other like 10 yards away from each other but we're in different rooms because you know it's been like that for a year and a half but yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) i've seen more of you on zoom than i have in person even with you 10 yards away i know it's So. so weird but but it is I, I, you know, just say stating it publicly again, how grateful I am that you managed to figure out a way for us all to actually come into the office because, um, you know, I think we all prefer it. So we yeah, all like having the energy and camaraderie. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So the first question is from Malachi H. And Malachi asks, how did we achieve the dilated pupils effect with Jimmy and Howard? Was it real or a VFX enhancement? It was real. We drugged Patrick Fabian. What? I, no, I'm and just kidding. Is that what really happened? Am, That's why we had to kill him? I, in another life, probably. Oh, no, um, we Isn't would it? not ever do that to Patrick Fabian. Of we adore not. Patrick Fabian. Um, uh, no, we actually, we talked about this uh, during prep when we first got the script. And, um, you know, a lot of times this is done with contact lenses, um, but it was, Decide, Patrick did not want to wear them. Um, he, he was not comfortable wearing them. Right. And so then it was very easy to just uh, do it as a visual effect. So yeah, so we did track that in. It's a, it's a visual effect. We did it because for Jimmy, it was just one shot. So that's easy. And then in, um, you know, for Patrick, I was worried that it was going to be a lot of shots, but we decided to really only kind of, we drilled down and just did it at the end where it had the most impact. impact. We just did it at the end where it had the most impact, which, um, you know, so it's just a few shots and it worked out great. And, but correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like Sherry even mentioned when we talked to her on the podcast that, that they did some makeup enhancement sort of around him to sort of sell the help sell it with like sweat and a little bit. They like did do that. Darkness yeah. under the eyes. And, and this is the thing, um, that's really interesting about doing these kind of cosmetic fixes mm-hmm. is you would not believe how much of it is performance. Right. Um, it is not, if we, even if we did the best visual effects you could imagine and Sherry put the sweat on his brow and all mm-hmm. that, 
if if Patrick didn't do the performance in a believable and human way, yeah. he would never buy it. Right. Um, so it's absolutely, I would say, ninety five percent performance and like five percent the rest of it. That's just like the chef's kiss on top to you know make it look real. That's well, that there it is. There you have your answer, Malachi. I hope I hope that answered what you uh, what you were looking for. Uh, and then we have two questions from Matthew S. Uh, the first question Matthew asks is, what is the most common QC fix or cleanup done on this show that would surprise most people, like mask removal, uh, which is a you know COVID problem, or beauty fixes, or reflections, et cetera? Um, this is an interesting question. Um, believe it or not, we only had to do one mask the entire season. And it was in someone's pocket. I saw it in their pocket. Uh, yeah, and they, and nobody, you know, we didn't have any issues with that. Not a, not a one. Um, we looked uh, though. We kept our, we, we checked we did, every we frame, did. scouring. And for... You know what? I can't even say. Like, you know, somebody might catch one somewhere in the background. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, fingers crossed that does not happen. <laughs> um, but actually, the the thing we do the most that uh, would probably surprise people is split screen. Mm-hmm. We do now, a I'm not fair familiar. number of those. <laughs> what's, a, what's a split screen, Diane? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not familiar with a split screen. So this is actually a trick that we started doing on Saul that we really couldn't do on Breaking Bad uh, because Breaking Bad obviously was handheld cameras. And you, then when we went to Saul and we, we just, Decide, you know, Vince and Peter decided at the start that they wanted this this show to have locked off cameras. And you know, we love our wide shots. So mm-hmm. sometimes you're choosing a wide shot for one person's performance. And d- d- this d- do not take this to mean anything against any of our actors. Our actors are extraordinary. And even in you know season six, they are all in all the time we do not have issues with actors not being present in a scene uh that is not a problem we have our people come to play they come prepared they are wonderful and they are a hundred percent fully in the scene at all times but sometimes there's there's somebody's moving in a way that you need them to not be so because you're combining you know different takes or different um you know you're you're using uh you know, part of one setup and going to another and somebody's maybe lifted their arm. And if you, if you cut into that corresponding, you know, dialogue in a different take, the arm movement doesn't quite match. And, and it, it's, it, it takes you out of it. I mean, that's one thing I think that all of us work really hard, you know, under Vince's guidance, starting with Breaking Bad, you know, we don't even like to see over the back of somebody's head, lip flap that doesn't match. You know, we want to make sure that everybody's in sync all the time so that you're fully, fully in the story all the time. Um, so, you know, every once in a while, somebody will be moving their arm in a way that doesn't match and we need to freeze them or do something so that we can stay in that wide shot um, and tell the story visually the way that we want to tell it. So we do a lot of combining of frames just things you would you wouldn't even know and we've talked a little bit about on the podcast just about sort of like the changing the timing of a performance slightly yes. or what if we just want to slow people down a little bit or speed yes. them up and we can do that with with little uh 
with little bits of cinematic trickery. Little, yes, editorial trickery that um, that Chris and Skip and both of the Joeys are are very very good at, and um, and it just allows us to tell this. To, it allows us to cut slower, right? I mean, I think that people, most people who watch the show, understand that our cutting pattern is a lot slower than a lot of other shows, and and that's part of the the reason we're able to do that is is by being able to hold on those takes and 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 kind of construct the frame the way we want it. It's always the way that the DP intended. It's just that we sometimes need to just polish it a little bit to make it work. That's right. And yeah, I think that would be the one. That'd be the one that you you wouldn't really know because you because uh if we've done our job right, they are invisible and you would never Totally know. invisible. Totally uh-huh. invisible. But luckily, there. I mean, there are some. I would say, and you know better than I. There are some, you know, reflection removals from time to time. But oh yeah. But the, you know, they, they, they actually, the camera, you know, the production does a, a, as, a, as damn good a job as they possibly can to. They really avoid do. That They're so possible. careful. They do everything they can, and, and both of our DPs are really conscientious about that. And of course, sometimes you just can't avoid it. You'll have a car you know, car door with a reflection in it or somebody, you know, in the very distant background of a shot in the desert or something like that. It, ha- it happens. Um, when we catch it, we try to remove it, but it's, it does not happen on a regular basis at all. Well, speaking of these VFX shots, Matthew S had one more question. Uh, I'd love to hear more about the VFX process. How late do we cut shots in and how does that work with playback on the stage? It really depends. Um, you know, uh, we do try to get ahead of it as much as possible. I, it is always my goal to have the picture as complete as possible by the time we do our producer's playback. Um, so, you know, I'd say we usually have the show at least 90% complete, usually much higher than that. Um, you know, if we're, if it's a big show, you know, with a lot of effect shots, um, like for example, episode <laughs> this season, um, we were we had a, quite a few that were not there for the mix. We always get at least a version in, and anything that is um, you know critically important to the mix, like say adding muzzle flashes or something like that, you know that is you know really important that we have it on the day. Or timing, we always kind of frame priority. accurate. Yeah, anything that has to be frame accurate or that you, you need to, you know, like a, a TV burn-in where, we ha- where we're gonna hear what's on the TV, um, anything like that. We make sure that we have at least a version of it. Maybe we'll still be tweaking it, but we'll have it uh, on the stage. Um, and then, a, you know, whatever's not done, we drop it in, um, you know, in the, in the time you know, the bat- we have the way we work, we mix, and then um, and then we do a QC pass, like a full QC pass which uh, means with a vendor. Qu- quality, quality control. control. Quality control. That's a, that's a technical, very complicated technical process where they watch the show very, very carefully and find little tiny errors and tell you so that you can fix them. And so that gives us a couple of days and we'll sometimes send a show without the last few VFX shots in and we'll drop them in, um, you know, the day we make the delivery dubs. So it's, we try to get it done for the mix so we have a little bit of time. And then that, that, that like three, four days between mix and, and delivery is my safety net. <laughs> okay, Jonathan M asks, I'd love to hear more about the tone meeting process. 
what's discussed, how long it takes, and if symbolisms are consciously decided upon or just naturally manifest as part of the process. Uh, here's Peter. Well, tone meetings are, uh, those are meetings between uh, writer and uh, producers and director. And it's really um, our last chance to go through the script page by page, scene by scene, and talk about what we're hoping to get out of each each scene. Now, the meetings are a little bit different depending on whether this is a director who's worked on the show before or whether it's someone who's new. If it's someone who's new or someone who hasn't been with us for a while, the first thing we talk about is you know, how the cast is doing, uh, any any personal quirks or anything that we need to they need to know about the cast or the crew, the key folks working they're working with. Um, try to give context to what's happening on the set. You know, if, if uh, we've had another episode that was shooting nights and everyone's exhausted, that's a good piece of information for the uh, for the director to know. Um, and then it's a uh, we 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 go back and forth and talk about the scenes and and talk about what how the director sees them and and especially how how we see them, how I see them, how the writer sees them, producers, and we talk about things that are important to us uh, and. Th- you know, sometimes visual hints. Uh, I would emphasize, though, that it's not prescriptive. Um, I know that there's some thinking in television that you should have a, a rule book about how the show should look. You know, we do this kind of shot. We don't do that kind of shot. Uh, I, boy, maybe I just don't have the discipline to think that way. But uh, part of the fascination of doing this work is to see how different people interpret the material. So I don't like to be uh, too doctrinaire or too definite, which I guess could be maybe a little frustrating, but there's certainly things things that we like, things that uh, we tend to stay away from. You know, one of the things uh, we always talk about is that uh, on, you know, Breaking Bad, everything was more or less handheld, and on Better Call Saul, for the most part, uh, shots are all a little bit more stable. They're on tripods or dollies. Uh, we talk about color. We talk about uh, transitions, the ways that you get into and out of scenes. Um, you know, if a director wants to do a oneer, you know, that's certainly something that we all talk about. Or if the director has a particular visual idea, it's something that we talk about and kick around and try to make sure we're all we're all on the same page. And that's that's really what it's about is is understanding that. Now, now you also ask about symbolisms, um, and symbolism is an interesting subject. Uh, it's in my my book, symbolism is uh, I don't know. It's 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 something that happens hopefully organically. Uh, there is de- there are definitely uh, visual symbols that we come up with in the writers room, and we absolutely talk about them. But we don't we try not to get too highfalutin or too theoretical. Um, it, it, when you're actually working on something and you need to communicate to people. Uh, it's usually good to boil things down to their uh, to their most basic essence. So we uh, we're not really using um, the language of the classroom. Uh, you know, there's a there's I forget who it was. There's a brilliant writer who once said, "Try to write as if you hadn't been to college," and I think there's, there's a lot of value to that. Uh, you know, the, the tools that you use to take something apart are not exactly the same tools that you use to put things together. Uh, so those are those are all some thoughts about tone meeting. The tone meeting follows on. It's a tone meeting is a much smaller meeting 
than a lot of the other meetings that we have. Um, the directors, usually the first big meeting the director has is what's called a concept meeting. And that's where the director meets with the producers and uh, keys from the whole crew and talks about uh, things that they're looking for from each scene. And, then, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about, you know, it's how much... How much of this area are you going to see? Uh, how many? How you know, how are you planning to move the camera? How far are you going to move the camera? There's it's it all ends up being extremely practical, almost work a day. Uh, but you know the as we always say, the devil's in the details, and it's uh, it's always worth talking about it, everything. Now, how long? Uh, oh, going back to tone meetings, how long do they take? Our tone meetings are known to be somewhat exhaustive, so we've had tone meetings that lasted. Uh, eight hours. We've had tone meetings that ended up being a day and a half. Uh, we've also had tone meetings that are uh, very short. It's often if someone's been in the writer's room, you know, if, if, if uh, Tom and I are toning or, or Vince and I are toning, uh, it usually goes by pretty quickly just because we were all there at the at the origin of all these ideas. Uh, so that's that's tone meetings. Okay, Peter S. from Germany asks Allison, in episode 605, Werner's wife, Margareta, talks about the beautiful baths in a little town called Karlovy Vary. How did you come up with that specific town? Uh, because it turns out that Peter's mother was born there and, and Peter was raised not far away from there. Uh, Allison? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, originally in the script, I had, uh, I had Budapest because, as you can tell from my correct pronunciation of the word Budapest, I actually have ancestors who are from there. My grandfather was from Pest and I've been there and it's a beautiful city and the baths are amazing. So that's what I had. And we realized upon further consideration that Tony Dalton, who uh, plays Lalo, would be able to repeat that back to the actor playing Mrs. Ziegler with a little bit too much ease. And we thought it would be more fun to put a, uh, a city in there that would be harder for him to pronounce so that the two actors could have some fun flirting and playing with the language. And we landed on another beautiful place with incredible baths that I personally haven't been to, but some of my colleagues have. And that was Carlo Vivari. Liar. <laughs> lies, all lies. I have a question for Alison Tadlock. Yeah. So Buddha is the nice side of the river and Pesht is the not so nice side of the river. So your your ancestors from the poor side of the tracks? Is that Yes, is sir. That, my no. grand my grandfather was from uh poverty in Hungary and his father, my great grandfather, Julius Deutsch, was the janitor at a gentleman's club. And the family lived in a basement apartment underneath the club. And if, if my grandfather were here, he would tell you with great macho pride that he and his brothers used to sleep on the pool table to show how tough they were. Wow. This is a good my, gra my grandmother was from privilege. And my grandfather was from poverty. Wow, so like a Romeo and Juliet thing across little the river. Little bit, little bit. Picture them looking at each other longingly across the river. <laughs> That's how it started. I like it. All right, so we got a question about the main title, and there's nobody better to talk about that than the person who I would say, I mean, I was involved a little bit in the conceptual stage, very little bit, but the person who really did them and made them what they are is a man, a young man who uh, we came up through the ranks in season one. We were both assistant editors on this show. 
Uh, and he is now a multi Emmy and ACE award nominated editor. It's Curtis Thurber. Wow. That's you're too kind. This I'm, I appreciate you even remembering my name and having me on to talk for a minute. Remembering your get out of here. All right. That's all the time we have, Curtis. Thank you very much. Goodbye. No. Um, what I, I wasn't going to say that, um, have you been on the podcast before? I can't remember. Did you ever come on to talk about anything? Long time. I think the last time I was on was um, to talk about the season two finale episode that I co-edited with Skip. That's a great episode. And, um, and, and then, and then you left us and we understand because you had to go off and, uh, and edit some of the best shows on television. So, um, but before you left, you were, vitally instrumental in the process of creating these main titles. And so let me ask these questions for you. I'll I'll start with this one. Uh, Tim R asks, I've been fascinated since episode one by the opening title sequence and credits. Is there a story behind how the different elements, payphone, Statue of Liberty, et cetera, were chosen? Wow. I wish, uh, I wish that my memory of seven years ago was, was, uh, was better than it is sadly, but, um, but I, but, Thank you very much for the question. First of all, um, I mean, my my recollection is that the the imagery was all kind of discussed in the room, and it was sort of a brainstorming approach in terms of figuring out what the most iconic Saul Goodman imagery was or could be. Um, things that would immediately, you know, take you back to that character from Breaking Bad. And then, you know, the the directive was sort of like it was kind of a nebulous idea, and And what I remember is you really zeroing in on that, like, sort of fucked up staccato, like, uh, like weird quality. And then and then Vince, especially seeing that and going, go further, make it more messed up, speed the footage up, slow, you know, spin it around and fuck it up and and. Am I, is, do you, does, is my memory jibe with yours? Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, that was the fun part was, you know, we all, we, we knew Saul as a character from Breaking Bad and pulling at those threads by itself was fun. But obviously, you know, we had some sort of inspiration in terms of his um, videos, the Saul videos that were made for Breaking Bad were always very much in that same style where they were, you know, low-fi, low production value. And so that was a starting off point. And there were there are a number of effects that we had access to just in the avid. You know, normally for a main title, you'd go to a lot more advanced graphics software. But the idea all along was like, why would we do that when you know Saul wouldn't have that ability? So we we kind of kept everything in-house partly for that reason. And so it was just throwing the kitchen sink at it. Right. Like, really, you want to push it this far? But it was, you know, it's just it's this awesome, memorable thing that came out of that. So it's a it's a really cool thing that happens on this show and on Breaking Bad. As I'm, I'm if my memory serves just to give credit where credit is due, that those commercials uh, were originally put together by Sheridan Williams Satello, who was an is an editor also and a, sure, and, a yeah. and a director now. And a mentor, and, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and and she was an assistant on on Breaking Bad, and and uh, if, if my memory is correct, she was uh, very responsible for the 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 way that those originally went. Um, and 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 then and then as the seasons have progressed, 
like even in season two, they, they wanted to start degrading them. And so I, I think that you put in little like you put in some flashes of like color bars. Yeah, well, that was I, yes, I did. I did one iteration of that because for season two, I th- the big thing was that we started to introduce some of some black and white with the idea that that would get taken further and further and further in subsequent seasons. Uh, but then you guys ripped it away from me and- uh, Oh, we ripped it away. You mean you, you, ripped you, it away. you abandoned My us baby. in a time of need, you you left us. Um, <laughs> uh, to, and, and then Joey Reinish, starting in season four, Joey Reinish really took up the mantle. It, it, it'll be, I'll just say this, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the main title. Uh, as the season progresses. Okay, Richard K asks, was Werner Ziegler named for Werner Hanline from the special effects department? Interesting question. And uh, one that I wish I had discussed with uh, uh, Werner when we had him on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago. He was on one of the bonus episodes. Uh, Here's Peter Gould. Yes, Werner is our physical effects department head and he is brilliant uh, and trustworthy. And uh, yes, in fact, uh, I, I, originally that character, uh, the work name that we had in the writer's room was Fritz. And uh, after a little while, we thought that was maybe that was a little bit silly for, uh, for a, a German character. So we decided to call him Werner, thinking about also Werner Heisenberg, of course. Um, and I called, I called Werner, uh, our Werner, special physical effects Werner. I called him to get his okay and his blessing for using his name because... Uh, even when we started, we knew that uh, Werner was going to come to a sticky end. So Michael S. asks, when a scene continues across multiple episodes, who writes and directs it? Does the first director continue to the end of the scene? Does the second director take over uh, during a single shooting session? Or does shooting break until the second episode uh, of shooting starts? I'm trying to think of times when I... It's a very interesting question because it does come about from uh, from time to time on shows where there's a cliffhanger or there's some some uh, moment where you really want that scene to continue but a different person is, is involved and so it's a it's a great question and I think every show solves it differently right what the so Peter and Vince uh, at the sort of helm of this thing I should say um, from where from where they sit they think of these scripts as being sort of singular expressions of whoever's writing. The script and uh, and they get handed to a director and then they have this great attitude because they're both directors themselves i think that they then become the singular expression of whoever is directing the episode now singular meaning hand in hand with everyone who works on the show first and foremost the writer to start with but singular nonetheless if a director really feels strongly that they want to you know shoot this section a certain way or stylize it a certain way or you know or or do it all in one or whatever it is they will stand behind that director and so what what i think i've found on this show is they would rather give the director the chance to direct that part which is in their script because it's in their script for a reason and that's been my experience with the show um i've had to I don't, I was, I'm racking my brains. I don't think I've done a direct handoff of the kind that Michael's asking about. I know they've existed on the show, but, um, but I have had to, uh, at the beginning of the season, for instance, um, I set up in episode one, the Motel Ocotillo with Nacho's storyline. 
And I had a little bit of getting him to that motel and establishing what it was like and, uh, and getting him into the room and, and seeing him in that room. But then Vince in the second episode had an enormous amount there. He had the whole shootout and the escape, and he had a lot more inside the actual motel room. So this isn't exactly um, an answer to Michael's question because we didn't continue the same scene, but uh, we certainly right. weighed in uh, and, and, and put our oar into the whole design process of the motel exterior and the motel interior, both of which started to be designed. I think we've talked about it on this show. Um, months and months before we ever started shooting so that it was a really right. interesting process of two directors who are first and foremost thinking about what the needs of their episodes are because you know we're the guardians of, of that but second of all trying to make choices that are good for us that also work really well for for the other and and uh, and it was it was kind of an amazing process uh and in this case we we genuinely didn't step on each other's toes because uh, as it happened, what Vince needed were things that I loved. You know, um, there was this great empty swimming pool, for instance, and, and, and neither of us wanted the swimming pool full of water. We loved it. We, we loved that part of the set. We both loved the sort of crookedness of the motel. We didn't, neither of us wanted to clean it up or make any big choices that would have um, upset the other. So um that's about the only time I can I can think of right now where where I've I've um, engaged that closely with something that was shared with another episode. Okay, Matt G asks, I'm curious about the process in which the BCS editors receive the media. Do you get batches of dailies? Is anyone cutting it down before you get the good stuff? Matt, uh, I can tell you uh, as as one of the editors. What happens is they process the dailies overnight in Albuquerque, and then they would send them digitally through some you know high bandwidth pipeline to our offices in Burbank, and then we would download them, and um, you know the assistants start organizing the dailies, and they give them to us. But nobody is cutting that stuff down. We watch every frame of the dailies. It's very important, and it's actually very good advice for any aspiring editors out there. Um, you got to watch all of your dailies, all of it, because that's the only way you're going to, first of all, get to know your material and become an expert in the material that you've been given so that you can make the most informed, best possible choices with that material. But also, you're going to find, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but you're going to find moments, little bits of nuance that that extend beyond just the dialogue. And, you know, there are, there are some editors who um, edit using the script function in Avid, which is, you know, it's, it's a very helpful tool. Uh, I've had to use it before. I don't personally choose to use it, but there are some producers, not on Better Call Saul, but there are some other producers who, who really like to have the script function where you can just go line by line and look at every single performance of a line. Now, I think there are other ways to do that. You can know your footage and you can kind of eyeball it. Or if it's really important for certain lines, you know, you could put a string out together and review all of those performances back to back. I I personally, it's a very time consuming process to do that scripting for the assistant editors. And I personally, for my 
workflow, there's just way more important things for assistants to do, in my opinion. Um, but it, it can it certainly is helpful in in comedy, especially where there are things with improvisation. But again, that requires a, a, a lot more work on the part of the assistant editor. So yeah, nobody's cutting our stuff down before we get to the good stuff. It's just us finding the good stuff in in um, in all of the footage. So I hope that answered your question. Uh, here's another one for for me from Jeff D. Jeff asks, "You're my favorite editor." Well, thanks, Jeff. That's great. Uh, Jeff goes on to say, "Granted, I'm young and have little experience." All right. See now that that's that's hurtful, and that like you took it was a it was a it was a great compliment, and then um and then, and then you just took it the other direction. But you know what? That's all right. Um, also, being young and having little experience doesn't mean you don't know what you like and you don't know what you want. So I say, stick to your guns. I'm your favorite editor. That's all we need to know. Uh, but Jeff asks, what are your favorite TV shows and what inspires you to do art more than anything? Uh, so Jeff, when I was younger, I was deeply influenced by filmmakers like David Lynch, uh, visual artists like Jan Saudek. I, I uh, definitely took myself very seriously, especially in college, my student films, very, very serious. Uh, and of course, I was like a lot of people from my generation, and in fact, many generations, I was totally obsessed with Star Wars. I grew up on it. Uh, and if you could see the room that I'm currently in, you would know uh, that I, I was into Star Wars because I still have a lot of the toys I played with as a kid. Um, but the real answer to your main question, uh, what are my favorite TV shows uh, of all time, besides Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, um, are probably Twin Peaks, Friday Night Lights and probably Mad Men. I loved Lost too, uh, off and on. But those shows to me had the the highest highs. I I, I really love all three of those shows. Um, but the single work of art that inspires me to be a filmmaker more than anything is actually the film Dazed and Confused. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it nothing. When I watch it, nothing makes me more excited to, to, to be a filmmaker every single time that I see it. Nothing makes me more excited. And it just gets me super pumped up to, to make things. So, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded uh, answer. Um, but uh, speaking of inspirations, uh, quite a few people wanted to know uh, what films have inspired the writers of Better Call Saul the most. And here's Peter. I know I'm going to leave some important stuff out when I start rattling them off, but um, I, I was—I'm uh, old enough to have grown up in the era where you didn't have uh, random access to all of film history the way we do now. Uh, I grew up in Manhattan, and at that time there were uh, several revival houses, uh, how, uh, theaters that would show old movies uh, on a regular basis, and uh, we always had uh, the schedules for those theaters on on the refrigerator when I was growing up. And maybe the one series that, that uh, blew my mind the most uh, and, that, and that really thrilled me was um, uh, the revival of Buster Keaton movies. Uh, and the Buster Keaton movies, uh, some of my fondest childhood memories are going after school to see a Buster Keaton movie with, uh, with live music 
there was a guy named Lee Irwin who played uh, who played the organ, and uh, those movies just rocked my world. Um, I, I don't think I fully understand why, or I don't think I fully understood why, but a lot of it had to do with the visual storytelling, and uh, I, I'm still fascinated by uh, silent movies. I think I think there's a lot to learn from silent movies. Uh, and then of course there's you know The Godfather. How could you not? How could you not pick that one? Uh, yeah, the 400 Blows is a particular favorite of mine. The Truffaut, uh, Fritz Lang, I think is a is a fantastic director. And M was a movie that, that really stays with me. And of course, you know, there's Scorsese, uh, and two of my favorite Scorsese's actually are kind of polar. Op- I don't know if they're polar opposites, but they're they're very different from each other. Got Goodfellas and After Hours. Uh, and the thing, one of the things that those movies both have in common is they were both shot by. Uh, the director of photography, uh, Michael Bauhaus, who was also the uh, director of photography on uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder's movies, which I also find quite fascinating. Um, other favorites, uh, certainly some Robert Altman, like Nashville. Uh, I could just go on. I mean, there's just, uh, you know, this, the, the wonderful thing about film history is you just never run out of movies to watch, especially now when we have access to all of them. All right. Carlos G writes, and this is not a question. This is really, uh, this was a postscript uh, in in the questions, but this is the one that stuck out to me. Could you please let Thomas Schnauz know that he fucking rules? I recently got my girlfriend to watch all of season one of Better Call Saul in episode nine, Pimento. When Schnauz's name comes up as writer-director, I paused the credits and told her, you see that name right there? When you see that name in the credits, shit's gonna go down. Oh my god. Between the two scenes from season five and six with Lalo and Jimmy and Kim's apartment, I swear he's taken years off my life from my heart racing. That fucker's amazing. Please let him know. Thanks. I can't disagree with you, Carlos. <laughs> That's all I got. That fucker is amazing is how I'm going to think of you from now on. <laughs> What's it like working with Tom Schnauz? That fucker is amazing. Here's another question. Uh, Molly B asks, what is your favorite visual moment of the series so far? Could be a montage, shot, set or location, etc. And I want to point out. Uh, hi, Molly, by the way, uh, that Molly spelled favorite F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-E, which uh, is how um, she she is in yeah, Canada. I, I, I say and favorite with you. You can't hear it, but it's in there. In, yeah. in your head. You're okay. saying it up there. Um, you say it with an accent as well. Say it with that, with that <laughs> really important silent U, without which it's just not the same word, is it? Um, I suppose uh, that is a cruel question. That's a really cool <laughs> question because like, how- I thought, <sighs> I, let me tell you why I thought you were well suited for it. A, you're a phenomenal director, but B, you, you know the show very well, but yes, I know it is an impossible question to answer. For it, sure. You know, it, it's so impossible because even, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying, but had you picked an episode and asked me my favorite visual moment of the, of the episode so far, it would be really difficult. This, <laughs> as you know, I think, the reason you asked the question, Molly, was um, was because the show is rightfully known for its for its visuals. It is, um, I mean, the, the cinematographers who have shot this show, uh, some of the best people I've ever I've ever worked with. I've done a lot of uh, a, a lot of work um, on the show. Almost all of my work on the show has been with Marshall Adams, uh, and Marshall Adams is um, 
is a stone cold genius when it comes to cinematography. But Paul Donerkey, I've done some stuff with, and I've certainly been producing episodes that, that, that he's shot and just absolutely comes at this with so much style and inventiveness. It's incredible. Uh, how do I answer that? Uh, I'm desperately stalling for time. I mean, it starts with, essentially it starts for me with the very, very first black and white sequence that ever, that was the very beginning of Better Call Saul. Oh yeah. Not only because I thought that sequence was so beautifully shot, um, which it was in my opinion, but also because how do you open a series like that? You know, how do you open a prequel to, 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 to Breaking Bad like that? <laughs> Right. It, so it was so rich and so daring and just so to me brilliant. So that was, you know, but there's so many. Like, okay, can I can I do the a, a very short short list of two or three that, that are coming to mind? Of course, of course. I'm gonna, not going to say any of for, for, from my episodes just because that I feel like you know, recusing myself from those, even though I'm I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff that we've done. But I mean, there was a there was a, a famous shot from. I think it was last season. You're going to know uh, that I think was, oh God, I might be miscrediting and misrepresenting, but I think it was in Melissa Bernstein's episode last season of Jimmy's um, face peeking out in the corner. Yeah, it's in 507. That famous shot of, yeah. of the two sides of Jimmy's face reflected and creating a, that whole was <laughs> phenomenal moment. It's I mean, a great shot. Great shot. Great visual storytelling. Brilliant idea. Brilliantly executed. Um, that's one. Uh, I think uh, I had I had a half a dozen in my mind a second ago. I think the I think the um, the wildly long um, border crossing one has to be. I mean, that's more of a mo. That's more of a sort of um, a, a virtuoso sort of. How do you pull that off? You know, versus a versus a singular visual moment. But it was so cool. You know, was that I can't remember if that's season one or two. I it think it might it's be two. two, maybe two, two, two oh eight. Maybe it was Larissa, I believe, directed I that, so. and Larissa Kondraki. It's and, yeah, it's, um, it's 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 great. It was before my time on the show, and it was like it was one of the things, as you know, as a viewer of the show that made me go. There's nothing that they don't try and do on this show. Uh, but there are you know there are many many others. Uh, so many moments make you just make you laugh you know, out of that kind of laugh you do when you just go, no way, you know, that are just so beautiful. I mean, I, I love and always have loved the kind of visual motif that was there since the beginning of, of, of Kim and Jimmy standing outside, not outside, but standing in the, in the parking lot smoking. Yeah. And there was always that great slash of shadow that cuts their head off. Yeah. I mean, that's so cool to me as well. I mean, these are things that you, we're used to it now we're six seasons into this show but these are not common images it certainly weren't when they were invented you know for this show they were not common images on television you know um and i think there's been there's been this an amazing uptick in visual storytelling in television there's so much incredible quality in television and streaming shows uh, all across the board now but this is something that that i'm i'm really proud of this show for for certainly insisting on from the very early days this is not just about what happens and it's not just about how it's presented by the actors it's very much about how it's visually presented 
you know, and edited um, and how, you know, um, so that's another one. I think with it from this season, from this season, what Vince and Paul pulled off in the, in Nacho's motel room in, in 602, mm-hmm. where the entire room in my memory, the entire room was lit by one streak of light that came from this upper transom window <laughs> was, so, was, I mean, that was just fantastic. I get literally, I get sort of, uh, goosebumps from that from chills from that because they had this one strip of light in pure almost pure darkness other than that and the way vince blocked it the way the camera moved uh the way michael mando just arrived in this streak of light and everything you everything was there and it was so underplayed but it was it was really really great okay trevor s asks talk about one of the most important parts of the filmmaking process catering what was the best meal you remember having on set or in the room? That is like the best question ever. Uh, and one I've never been asked. I was directing episode 602, uh, having a tough day. As always, they're all tough days. Shooting the teaser, shooting the scene in 602 where uh, Mike and his guys uh, break into the old safe in, uh, in Nacho's uh, condo and then replace it with a brand new safe. And... Lunchtime was, uh, I think the, uh, I ate lunch in my trailer. I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were parked over at the Albuquerque bio park in a big parking lot there. And my wonderful assistant, Melissa Ng brought me my lunch. Cause I like to take a nap and I opened the, the styrofoam container and it is surf and turf. It is the, it, it was a steak so good that Ruth Chris could sell it for like 80 bucks. And I'd like, my eyes were rolling up in my head eating this thing. And then it was, I think it was a piece of swordfish that was among the best pieces of fish I've ever eaten in my life. And it had a little lemon with the little yellow uh, net on it, like the little yellow hair net and squeeze the And it was the best tartar sauce. And I just really, every bite was, was, both uh, a revelation and a sadness that I was coming that much closer to the end of the meal. And it was so delicious. So hats off to Mario's catering and to Luis, our head chef and to his genius crew. This was, I, I, I think I, I, you know, I actually was late getting back to the set because uh, with Mel's help, I, I wanted to pass along to these guys. I, you know, she, I, I, yeah, they have to steer me around the set because I have the time. I don't even know what planet I'm on. But it's like she I said, where is this guy who cooked this amazing meal? And she took me to him. And I just uh, waxed rhapsodic for 10 minutes and was probably late to the set after lunch telling after telling these guys what a great job they did. They seriously could have sold this thing in like the top restaurant in Los Angeles for like, I don't know. I don't know how much money. All right. Thank you, guys. It was delicious. I, I will say the, the same our, our catering really is spectacular and we have a dedicated uh vegan slash vegetarian uh station for for people that don't can't enjoy the the surf and turf option which is which is great um and it's always really good and it's always really interesting one time they had uh they had what was looked like it was like it was sushi they were doing tuna spicy tuna crispy rice like it's a dish that you normally get at at any sushi place but it's vegetarian so it's like like this has got this this can't possibly be good it looks amazing but i'm like this can't 
how, how are you going to manage this? And they, what they had done is they took watermelon, our, our vegetarian chef took watermelon, pressed it, sort of squeezed out the, 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 the liquid and then soaked it in something, soy sauce and something else overnight to kind of reconstitute it. And it was not, it, it didn't, it didn't have fish texture or anything like that, but it was, it was incredible. It was truly, and people all, all around set, people were like, oh my God, you gotta try this. Oh, did you try this thing? It was, it was truly spectacular. And the same kind of thing where it's like, any restaurant in the world would be dying to serve something this accomplished, you know, and they're doing it for, for you know, two dozen people. And the, the line at the vegan catering was often very, very long and mostly, non-vegans <laughs> because it was so good and it was so like not something you would you would get when i was directing i just said we said one of the uh, ad's asked me what i wanted for lunch and i just said just give me whatever the vegetarian option is just just one of those and it was in my trailer and it was and it was always great and finally lydia m asks if you could play one character from breaking bad or better call saul who would it be uh, I'll start. It'd be the vet. It'd be Dr. Caldera. And really the, the main reason besides, you know, look, I love animals and I love the idea of kind of be, I love that he's a conduit to this world. We don't know. He's funny. Uh, and, you know, to be able to, to spend a day in Joe DeRosa's shoes, uh, if you're longtime listeners of the podcast, know what a huge Joe DeRosa fan I am. So and it was uh, totally awesome getting to meet him when he did the podcast a few years ago. So that'd be my answer. And um, yeah, here are the answers of most of the other people who did this podcast. Yeah, I'd probably play Hector because he gets to sit a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's you, Tom. That's, that's you live in the dream, man. I like it. Oh, my God. That is such a great question. That's a really good question. Uh, so this this may be uh, this may be a little off base and not off base but just like out of left field lalo salamanca <laughs> because well, that guy is the freest person i've ever seen interesting he does not care he he enjoys life yes he's a sick bastard and he's a murderer and all that stuff and but is there any other character on this show that would disappear for three episodes and then just pop up in Germany ordering <laughs> a martini. And you'd be like, yeah, totally, I'd buy it. I mean, I like Mike is Mike is the coolest and he can do anything, but he has so much pain. Yeah. He has so much pain in his life, Very which much. is horrible. And I wouldn't wish that pain on anyone. And um, you know, Kim is the coolest. I am not as cool as Kim. There's no, I couldn't possibly, nor am I as quiet as Kim. Like never gonna happen. Uh, I could I could not hold my cards that close. But Lalo is he's the most he's so in the moment. That is something that is so foreign to me. I feel like that would be kind of fun to, I don't know, experience for you know part of the day. You know? uh, no, none of them. I I I I hate acting. I'm terrible. I, I I'm I'm so bad at it, and it's so uncomfortable. If you had like, to though, if if, if we're gonna. I, hold- there's a, Okay, if I had to, uh, I would play Lyle. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Lyle. I feel like not, no, I I could not do nearly as well as as Harrison Thomas does as as Lyle. Uh, I have none of that skill, but I feel like 
I could be a, a small, earnest sycophant. <laughs> While 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 uh, for people rushing to look it up, listening to this uh, is uh, is the assistant manager at uh, Poyos Hermanos. Yeah, played by yeah, played by the wonderful uh, Harrison Thomas. God, he's he's great. He does a great job, and he's got a hell of a singing voice. He does, which may or may not uh, be heard at some point. I think I'd I'd also play Lalo. It feels like Lalo has all the fun. Lalo's having a great time. I was going to yeah. say Lala, that I might play Lalo as well. Yeah. That would be an interesting interpretation of Lalo. Either one of us, actually. <laughs> Lalo, yeah, that's a good answer. But then I also thought maybe I would play Saul, not to be confused with Jimmy or Gene. I kind of bump up against the uh, the Gordon thing of it because, it, yeah, I, I think who would be fun to play, but then I, then I realize, you know, the more fun the character is, the worse a job I would do personally. So uh, it and and it would it would stand in starker contrast. Uh, yeah, I'm, and when I say this, I'm not imagining me. I, I am imagining I am Tony Dalton. Oh, oh okay. You know, as a role that I could play, I don't know. I you know, yeah, see, I probably, was imagining... probably Hector. I could ring a bell, probably. <laughs> I think we're just supposed to dream. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if I was in any char- any character that would be in a scene with Banks, Banks would hit me by the end of the scene. That's all. Like if he just. You'd lose patience so quickly. My God. You've chosen the hardest questions. Um, I think it's going to be, I think it's got to be camera guy. I want to play camera guy. Oh, camera guy as portrayed by Josh. Josh Fadum? Fadum. Not that I, I can't guy. touch Josh Fadum for the, for the portrayal of camera guy, but I would love to be camera guy. That sounds really fun. <laughs> what about camera guy? It's, it's I just love how he, he loves what he does so much that he's going to piss everyone else off. You know, like, I just love his whole sense of like, uh, uh-uh. uh, he, he, I get the sense that I could never be him because he's just so, he is set in his ways. His whole, like, don't touch my stuff. Uh, he just made, I think I'm right. confusing maybe wanting to play camera guy as camera guy and just being such a fan of Josh Fadum and how he plays that character, <laughs> but still, I think Hank from Breaking Bad. Now that we're now that now that we've refined the ground rules here, because because Hank was a badass and he had swagger and he was fun. He had a sense of humor and yeah, obviously the way Dean Norris played him was brilliant. And he just he was, but he had he had demons too. But he got to he got to shoot a lot of guns. That was that looked like that was fun. All right, that's going to have to do it for this one. Uh, it's a long one, but it could have been much, much longer. Uh, thank you to everybody who sent in questions. I'm I'm really sorry that we couldn't get to every single one of them. There were a lot more that I wanted to do, and we just kind of ran out of time. And But uh, hopefully this was fun and informative. And I also hope that we see you again next week for episode 608 which is one of the episodes I edited. Uh, I can't wait for you to see it. So until next week, here is super producer Jen Carroll, who goes completely out of her way to help make this podcast a reality. I can't thank you enough, Jen. Um, But Jen has agreed to take us out Better Call Saul style. Jen, will you do the honors? Better Call Saul.